bitch bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. My name is Erica and I'm solo today. That's right. You guys get a special bonus pod of a Black History Month, Bad and Bitchy, this year. Again, one that is uh, basically written, produced, and edited by moi. And today we have for you um, a special guest. Faria Ahmed, who is the chair of the Justice for Abdirman Abdi Coalition. Um, if you guys remember, Abdirman Abdi was a 37-year-old Somali Canadian with mental health issues who lives who lived in Ottawa's Hindenburg community at 55 Hilda Street. Abdirman died on July 24th, 2016, from a violent altercation with Ottawa Police Service officers. Mr. Abdi had no criminal history, and there were no indications he posed a threat to the lives or safety of the officers at whose hands he died. As required under the Police Services Act, the Provincial Special Investigations Unit, the SIU, conducted an investigation into the incident. The SIU is required to investigate all reports of deaths, serious injuries, or sexual assaults in relation to provincial or municipal police officers. So two police officers were involved in the arrest, Constable David Weir and Constable Daniel Montsion, and they were designated as subject officers during the course of the investigation. Constable Weir was later reclassified as a witness, while Constable Montsion was charged with manslaughter. And these charges were laid by the SIU on March 6th, 2017, for manslaughter, aggravated assault, and assault with a weapon in relation to the death of Abdirman Abdi. On February 4th, 2019, the criminal trial of Daniel Montsion began in Ottawa on, on these charges in connection with the beating death of Abdirman Abdi. The trial is scheduled for a 12-week period from Feb- February 4th to May 3rd, 2019. On February 6th, the trial was adjourned unexpectedly due to revelations of potential new, a new piece of video evidence. The trial restarted on February 25th, 2019. Now, today is February 27th, and um, but the interview actually took place on February 25th. So when I met Faria, she was actually, I met her at the courthouse in Ottawa, and she was already... Um, uh, observing the trial so uh as our guest we have her and i'm super excited because i think for me personally the death of abdirman abdi was a turning point um there are a couple of turning points in sort of my activism and this was one of them and because i live in hintonburg the community uh within which this beating death took place by police officers. I I feel it on such a personal level that um, I am really, really interested in exploring what the coalition has done, how they responded, and how they have moved not only the discussion, but the actual policy surrounding um, issues of police uh, violence, especially with uh, communities of color forward. So without um, any more of my uh, talking or intro, here is the interview with Faria Ahmed, who is the chair of the Justice for Abdirman Abdi Coalition. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, I'm totally excited about this uh, because um, 
I have been this this I don't want to call it incident because it doesn't even give like words to the gravity of the situation but his death I live in Hinchinburg so his death really impacted me personally Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I'd marched for a long time was that August weekend where we had the demonstration outside of the police um, the police headquarters downtown and um, it just it changed it changed my activism Mm. it really did so there's a reason why I personally have a stake in this Mm -hmm. and have been following it and you know to know that something so horrific happened at the bridgehead that I would go to every day Mm -hmm. is really really it's changed the community too and I think um issues such as gentrification racial equality um, mental health, immigration, all of these things are wrapped up in this incident or this tragedy, let me call it. And um, I guess for me, my first question, I want to, first of all, I want to make this sort of a an aspirational podcast. We're not going to go over the details of the trial. CBC right now is live tweeting. If you want to follow um, the tweets, Laura Osman, I believe, is, is live tweeting the trial. Um, take a look at her tweets. You will get all the details. But this is really a podcast about activism and about advocacy work mm-hmm. and what goes into that because you've done a shitload of work on this. So let's start out with who you are, what your background is, and how you, how you decided to take action basically. Okay, well, um, my name is Farhia Ahmed. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so f- who I am, I'm uh, my, my, my Twitter profile says that I'm a productivity junkie, I'm a mo- mother of four, a proud public servant, um, and a community activist. So how I came to be these things, I guess, is just circumstances of life. But um, I think when I reflect on, uh, you know, my my need and um, seemingly uh, com- compulsive way of finding myself in causes like this is um, I grew up with parents who really instilled in me a strong sense of justice, um, even in the deliberations and um, <laughs> shenanigans with my siblings there was always a question of justice in whatever the situation was and so um particularly my father he's he's always been known as a strong just man um always on the side of good and at at whatever cost which sometimes cost him a lot of things and so that's just a little bit of a backdrop in in my personal upbringing um but i didn't grow up an activist necessarily (laughs) uh aside from dealing with playground bullies and whatnot um i uh you know i was uh born into a somali family uh, raised in ottawa all my life spent my schooling in ottawa to eventually um find myself at a crossroads in university when i really had to decide what i wanted to do um i had started off in sciences uh having been groomed to go into medicine as uh, a proper immigrant (laughs) immigrant child Uh, exactly. I, am, I sorry, just to everybody's cut, story, right? <laughs> just to cut in. Yeah. I am feeling this like biography right now because I see so much of myself in that. Yeah. <laughs> I hit organic chem and that was it. <laughs> I was like, no more. <laughs> I got to my first year, first semester, and literally by first semester of first year, I just decided to. It was the first moment I actually took a moment to say, I, I'm not doing this. This is not for me. I'm not enjoying this. And so I am a person of action, though. So I decided to start auditing classes with friends. And so I remember I took a comms class, communications class, uh, with one of my dear friends. And I realized I was so interested. In particular, it was um, anthropological uh, communications. Mm-hmm. And it just spoke to me because... Um, 
it's so interesting how uh, human connection is about communicating, right? Yep. So anyways, uh, long story short, I went into communications. I studied public administration as well. Um, but this was also when 9-11 happened. Okay. So yeah. 9-11 happens and I'm suddenly in a space where I'm studying communications and media um, and, and public relations and public administration and how the, the narrative around um, Muslims and terrorism and all of this was happening. Right. And so even though um, uh, I didn't really know that I... How did those messages change after 9-11? Oh, they were, so, like, yeah, you, you know, uh, finding, I found myself, I'm, I'm a visibly Muslim woman, I wear mm-hmm. a hijab, mm-hmm. um, and I was active on campus in a lot of social advocacy groups. Um, one of them was the Muslim Students Association. Okay. And so we were constantly finding ourselves in a very defensive place. But what I quickly realized was that there wasn't a strong grasp of, amongst my peers about how to really communicate with the media. Um, and so I kind of stepped into that space because I was like, no, this is our story. And no, we don't have to be defensive. And no, we don't have to take everybody's bullshit. Um, and, you know, so I just kind of gravitated towards um, a lot of media relations kind of functions. And so this spilled over into the community and through community activism in the Somali and black community. Um, and I, you know, I found myself in doing events on the Hill and all of these things then I got married, had my first child, and I remember vividly having that child in a backpack carrier and still continuing to pursue a lot of these protests and things like that. Then baby number two came, and I literally fell off the face of the earth. Fair enough. <laughs> um, and so, um, and the reason I bring this up is because I now have four children, and so I had been busy with my life and my career and my children until July 24th, 2016. That's right. And I, um, when people ask me, you know, how did you get involved? I can't, I will never forget that day, that moment. Um, I was literally at home folding laundry when a friend called me and was in, in a panic to say what had happened. And so I had no clue what was going on. Um, I was not even active on Twitter. <laughs> I didn't, didn't, wasn't using it. And so, of course, I tried to find CBC News. And uh, to my horror, I discovered what was going on. And my gut just was turning. And so I stepped out into the world from my little bubble that day and went to, I heard that there was going to be a community gathering. The Somali community in particular was quite distraught. Abdurrahman was a Somali man. And uh, we gathered at a school. And of course, I knew, I knew everyone, but I felt out of place because I'd been under a rock for so many years, about 10 years to be exact. What, yeah. Um, and so uh, literally people were like, hey, how are you? Haven't seen you. Good to see you here. It's, you know, we're all like sad that we're so, at this place, though. So did you did you feel like you were stepping back into like a family? almost y- yes like a but like an extended family but absolutely yeah, no yeah, there yeah. was there you know i'm glad you point that out because there was comfort in that space i think you know i i'm i think that when we talk about safe spaces i don't yeah. think people really under if you're not yeah like part of a community that's been under siege mm-hmm. basically like you don't know what that means yeah exactly absolutely and so like what I'm getting to especially you know when it comes to being a Muslim woman visibly Muslim mm-hmm. and okay so you deal with you know various microaggressions fine you know you you kind of go home you you have this other life that you can kind of you know un unpack all that stuff and and whatever you have your children who you love and who love you and you look into their eyes and everything's fine well you know for the most part but when you step into a space with people who understand exactly inside and out Mm -hmm. how you're feeling and how you relate to the greater society as a Somali Muslim woman it is 
a breath of fresh not only is it a breath of fresh air it's like an exhale mm-hmm. that you it's a release it's a release and a feelings, relief yeah. 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 yeah so i i i truly so that's what i was getting to but yeah continue yes so definitely there was a feeling of comfort in that space part of the objective of that gathering was to be amongst people who are everything you just described you know um, and so, um, so that's how I got involved. I stayed behind after this community gathering with folks who all felt that something had to be done. What that was, nobody no, knew. Nobody yeah. knew. Yeah. But I honestly uh, believe that, you know, um, there's a means that all things happen in a particular fashion. And uh, I'm I am a, a, a person of faith, and I do believe in. Um, divine planning and divine connections to things and so here I was mind you I should just note that I I did get a degree in communications and public administration I eventually went back and got certification as a public relations practitioner specializing in media relations I didn't really use that I ended up going into social policy in the federal government working on a whole slew of other things but um, there was a reason I got that degree somehow or those things and so um, the immediate need on the the days following Abdurrahman's death was media management most definitely there was and that was something I knew and I was okay to do and so I just said listen before we get into strategic planning we got to get through the, the next four days because the funeral was being planned Needless to say, the funeral was a circus of media. Yes. And so um, uh, we we got together and uh, I went into action plan mode with, you know, uh, there was, uh, and I should mention that there was so many other amazing people with me. I was not alone, right? We were all just there saying what, what expertise we had and how we could help in that moment. That's how we started. We didn't have a pl- game plan necessarily. We just knew the immediate need is this, who can help with X, Y, Z. So in other words, let me get, let me, let me get this straight. You saw this and said, oh my God, what the fuck? Yeah. You said, this is bullshit. Well, other people said, this is bullshit. Something needs to be done. And you all got together and basically sorted out your expertise and decided, okay, what was needed? Literally, in a, in a, it was a school that we gathered at. Yeah. So we all moved to a classroom. Yeah. We got chalk and chalkboard and we just started, um, how do you say, brainstorming everything that needed to be done. And then gathering names of who had what expertise and starting with prioritizing the needs. Perfect. So, so there was support for family that was needed. There was. Right. Uh, so th- those were some of our initial conversations. Hey, what's happening? Okay, well, the family is bombarded with media. They don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. The uh, the funeral needs to be planned. Um the there's uh, social ser- services that are needed at the hospital with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all broke up. We we are thankfully a community of people that are um, professionals in, in, in every field right now. And so we all just lent our expertise to what needed to be done. Our friends in social services immediately got the family all of the support services they needed. Um, I struck up a team to work on media relations. There was a team managing logistics for the the funeral and dealing with uh, city and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until after the funeral that we had a moment to breathe Mm -hmm. and get to know the people we've been working with for the last five days. Right. We didn't even have a chance to introduce ourselves to each That's other. That's crazy that you didn't even like know each other. Nobody knew each other. Nobody, well, you we, just we had knew a of each other, but we were just so. About a week later, mm-hmm. we gathered um, at the Somali Center for Family Services, and I'll just plug them because they've been fantastic in allowing us them more. the space that we needed. Say their so, name again. Somali Center for Family Services on Bank Street in Ottawa, Bank and Walkley. Awesome. And uh, the executive director there basically gave us a key to this office and said the space and its resources are yours as you need them and so we've had a we've had a place to have a war room we've had a place to make photocopies we've had a place to have meetings we had a place to be professional yeah and uh, that is that was tremendous amount of support um so many other organizations stepped up in the same way Mm -hmm. but i think what helped propel us to that kind of position was um so the funeral happened Mm -hmm. and then our next question was 
now what? Yes. <laughs> what the F are we going to do now? Like, what needs to be done? So we figured we needed a press conference. Okay. We needed to address the media. We needed and to say address what? the what world. Would, what was that like? That what was, was that objective? And why objective did you think you needed that? The conversations after having met each other yeah. were questions. How can this happen? Yes. Why did this happen? Right. Who needs to do what? Right. And so what we did was we put together um, a list of recommendations to all levels of government at that time. Um, the recommendations to the city and the mayor, recommendations to the police chief, recommendations to um, the attorney general, recommendations to the federal government. And we sat uh, and we had an opportunity to also allow all those partners to come and stand with us um, in solidarity that day mm-hmm. and to, to path. And that was when we also we needed a platform to now state that we were a group. Yes. These were objectives, the objectives that you read yeah. and that we were on a we were going to be, you know, going into those objectives. Right. Um, so that was August 4th, 2016. So this is, so this is before the press conference, like in, in leading up to the press conference, you put all these recommendations together. Yeah. And then we, we and then you, announced them. And then you announced them mm-hmm. in some, in which way, like in, in a press release? Or? Yes. So we had um, the press conference. Uh, we had, a statement that we drafted mm-hmm. and then we um, we at that time there were two other groups that were very um, I- instrumental it was the National Council of Canadian Muslims mm-hmm. in particular Amira El-Gawabi I'll just mention her because she, I she's know her fantastic. yes yes yeah. I have spoken to her a couple yes. of times yeah yes. um, I'm just like everybody's so connected absolutely <laughs> yes just like I totally know the names you're spitting it's great okay um, and the uh, African Canadian Legal Clinic also at that time okay. was uh, one of the, the early groups that reached out to, to lend a hand. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So um, so th- this was an opportunity to have a platform to announce our existence, mm-hmm. to announce that we, we had an objective mm-hmm. and that these were the objectives. Right. And so from that, um, there was uh, a sense of, uh, you know, understanding from organizations all across the country actually the civil liberties group also uh, civil liberties monitoring mm-hmm. group also reached out to offer support mm. and um, and then we we found ourselves um, having uh, uh, th- there was also a need to respond to these institutions as well because right. they also were like you know they're, they they come they want to talk also um, but we pushed back we said, we're not ready to speak with you. We're, our community is still mourning. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be in touch with you when we're ready. And nice. so we did that. We coordinated with many groups, especially the Somali community organizations, to say, look, we need a united response, mm-hmm. and here's how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we took our time, um, and it wasn't until the end of August that we finally sat down with the mayor, with the chief, um, and the attorney general eventually, and we laid down our recommendations for each table separately. Okay. And we did this through research, mm-hmm. through researching what has been done mm-hmm. and what, what, what our take on what happened to let, lead to this place. That's right. And what each one of them needed to do. So, so these are all published on our website, by the way, if anybody's okay. interested. Okay, cool. Um, what do you think? So what were, give us in terms of... Um, so what kind of roadblocks did you encounter in this in this particular part of the journey? And that part, the yeah. early bar? Yeah. Well, there was some, uh, that actually leads really well to what I was saying. So we sat with each of these tables mm-hmm. and we were like, here are the issues we think are and here are the recommendations. In some of those meetings, in, there were some recommendations, um, like for example, with the chief. Mm-hmm. How can, how can one of your police officers, one paid through public funds, be allowed to remain on duty right? <laughs> after something as, as tragic and ridiculous as this happened, mm-hmm. right? What we, we demanded that, that, per, that, that Daniel Monson be um, suspended and without pay. Mm-hmm. And initially, uh, immediately we were told, he, the chief doesn't have, nobody has the power to do that. Mm-hmm. And we said, why not? Mm-hmm. The power. That's, that's the answer they always give, by the way. Uh, no, that's right. So we yeah. said, well, um, no, we, you are the chief 
and the the mayor you report to the to the mayor too mm-hmm. what what's blocking you so we did actually realize that the legislation did not allow those powers to the chief mm-hmm. and um almost with divine timing justice michael tulloch was doing the review of the police services Act. yes yes and so we realized okay well uh this is the narrative they're using but they also have the legislation supporting their non-action right but we have an opportunity so we put all our effort on legislative review because everything that we needed to have happen could be done through legislation and I always look back on this that time, that period of time, and I know that it was 18 months because it was 18 months of my life and everyone else who was involved in this. We literally spent almost every moment of our free time dividing up this 400-plus page legislation. We broke it up using Google Docs. We had an index and broke up pages that each one of us would read and analyze. Um, we had lawyers on the team. We had policy analysts on the team. We had people who knew how to look at these kinds of works. And so we had conference calls scheduled every other night to debrief. And eventually, um, we, we consulted on what we were seeing and wondering as well. Um, and we took the opportunity to meet with Justice Tulloch. And uh, we met with him um, in a one-on-one consultation that he requested with us because of the work Um, and the progress we were making. We also had the opportunity to engage. We demanded and received attention from the Attorney General's office, uh, more specifically the ADM, the Assistant Deputy Minister, um, responsible for this legislation. And through conversations with legislative drafters um, and other legal experts that we engaged, um, we were able to craft wording to actually put into the legislation what we wanted to see happen. So you were able to craft the language for legislation. Yeah. Impressive. And we, till the day that it was being, the text was being negotiated back and forth. Right. And this is just for, for, for activists out there listening, there's so much to be said about building relationships with people on the inside. Because the the senior analyst that was coordinating the legislative drafters and meetings with the ADM was able to be on the phone with me and give me an inside understanding of what the, what the blocks might be and then for us to go back and think about okay well this is this is how we can word it and there were times that where we, where we had to make concessions um, but understand what those concessions would be um, for example, there were parts of the legislation that the Liberal Party, who was the one um, bringing the legislation forward, um, wanted that we didn't necessarily agree with, right? And so we had to find times to agree with, you know, we, we had to be nonpartisan, basically. So anyways, those are just little nuances, but very, very important because at the end of the day, the words that we put on paper eventually found themselves in the legislation. And we were floored that this happened. I'm looking at you right now and I'm like, wow. Yeah. So how, where does that legislation stand now? I, I know. I know. We have a Ford government. I know. Can I just tell you, for Please those do. who do not know, <laughs> the legislation went through March 8th. And we no. published we, we published that we were just, we were beyond excited. We are so excited. Um, and we were just in awe that, of, of, that, you know, looking back on all those nights, that it actually ended up changing Ontario legislation. Um, but then what happened was the election happened in May. Yep. And... Uh, in the, this particular legislation, the bill was supposed to receive royal assent on, uh, ju- or come into sorry power, uh, come into force. It received royal assent March eighth, and mm-hmm. it was supposed to come into force June 29th. No way. Okay, let's just hear me. Hear this timeline. It was supposed to come into effect full force June 29th. On the eve of June 29th, June 28th, we received a letter from the new government who took, who's very first action was to repeal that legislation 
Thank you, Carolyn Mulrooney. Yes. And so if anybody has been watching the news lately about this legislation, you will know that they've now gone on to repeal the oversight measures, which yes. were the accountability measures yes. that we were most dearly attached to. Yes. And so uh, where it stands now is that they are fucking with it, mm-hmm. for lack of better words. And we um, need to find uh, our allyship um, very through minority governments. Uh, sorry, the, the Ford government has the majority, minority. Um, the opposition. The oppositions, yeah. right? And there, there's, there's still hope to negotiate some of the text. And mm-hmm. we're trying to find um, our way back to the table. Right. And but the real change, I think, will only come through uh, election time. Come three and a half years. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. where that is. And how does how does that like impact you, like emotionally and 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 psychologically? Um, June twenty eighth, when I received that letter, my heart sunk and I was in disbelief. Um, but it was a wake up call. It's a realization it gave me. Uh, the re- that realization honestly has has made me believe strongly in the power of our elected officials and the need for our our voices, our energy to be placed in being at the decision-making table, always. Yeah. And so I'll be honest, I've never really cared about politics until this experience. Yeah. F- truly. Yeah. And now I have never been so much more passionate about it. Well, I'm glad you're on this show then. <laughs> we're passionate with you yeah and um i know that uh we like this is you know what you just described is a feat that many people wouldn't even think that they could reach basically Mm -hmm. and so i just want to let people know and i think having you on you know interviewing you is really really important to this to know that we're all activists Mm -hmm. now yeah and so how do we get action how do we, and how do we get results from that action? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that that's really important. And how has, so first of all, where does the um, special investigations unit kind of come into this? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my first question. The second question is more around the impact, which I'll ask later. But tell me about the SIU and how they fit into this because I have to say I was floored when I heard that they charged him mm-hmm. in uh, I think it was 27 yeah 2017 yes yeah March 2017 March 20 and I was like what because I never expected the SIU to do Nobody anything yes. because they don't yeah. usually usually they're just a face on the name of accountability mm-hmm. and don't really deliver accountability Absolutely. so tell me how that came about well, the oversight mechanisms in the legislation were very much focused on uh, creating a new oversight body and reforming the SIU. So the, all that to say, a lot of the legislative drafting that eventually happened was preceded by being extremely vocal. We, we as a coalition um, were also supporting and trying to be a voice, not on behalf of the family, but on behalf of the cause, the issue around what the family was experiencing. And one of the things they were experiencing was this delayed outcome from the SIU investigation. And the reasons for that was that the way the SIU was built um, was not built to be efficient. It was not built to be uh, transparent. And so a lot of the, we were putting press releases out and every single one of those are published on our website. commenting and speaking to former um, SIU investigators and realizing that it was an old boys club, number one, um, friends of friends of police officers who were being uh, given roles of investigating police officers. And this was a big challenge, right? That's crazy. And so um, it took almost eight months for the um, investigation to be completed. And one of the criticisms we had was about the delay. And one of the reasons for the delay, and this is one of the issues that we found we were able to get into legislation, was that there was no compliance or accountability for police to cooperate with the SIU in an investigation like this. So, for example, if there was a need for for a police officer to hand in um, material or evidence or anything... Uh, there was no compliance measures. The police officer could ba- basically say, okay, I'll get to it, or not. 
and there was no compliance. And so one of the things that we, till the last minute of the, dra the, the drafting of the legislation had argued about was that there should be a severe penalty for, for non-compliance. And um, up until now, there was nothing. And we, we had asked for a minimum of $25,000 fine on the, on the police officer who does not comply. And with That'll the, get their attention. And jail time. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> and they, I remember hearing back from the our inside sources that the other side was uh, the other side is the the police association has, who's also lobbying the government was heard about our our recommendation and was coming back with a four thousand dollar penalty and no jail time. Mm -hmm. The eventual legislation included our twenty five thousand dollar penalty ask and jail time for yes. non for noncompliance. Wow. So but this, as you can see, imagine having to go back and forth with the police officer telling an investigator to F off yeah. in an investigation. Yeah. Um, that's why there's so much delay and complication and not that you can never really charge anybody if you don't have the evidence to charge them with anything and so so that's why the SIU uh, event well eventually we were being vocal about all of these criticisms right. and I think it was the first time that it was um, and I think that you know also the death of Abdurrahman gave this the, a, a strong uh, platform for this kind of line of questioning mm -hmm. but we were being vocal about these deficiencies mm -hmm. and I think that that did play some onus on the SIU to come clean about um, or take the take the investigation a little more seriously well good for you I mean I'm 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 really enjoying this actually because I think you've just pretty much expanded what is possible Absolutely. for each one of us that that was a major realization and in fact um i did publish something on HuffPost uh, shortly after the 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 bill came in into effect because i was just in awe that we here here i was folding laundry a few months ago and next thing you know my t uh, the team that i've been working with was actually able to affect change yeah. real change yeah and I think that's true for every, for all of us. We just have to want to step in. And we have to leverage who we know. We have to leverage our community. Absolutely. And be able to build on that community too. Yeah. And I think I think that's an important lesson. Like you said, you made you made connections with people who were on the inside who could guide you through this process. Mm -hmm. You had people on your team who were legal experts, policy experts. We all have something to give yeah. to um to a uh, a common goal and i think that over over time we kind of lose that especially after school yeah. let's put it that way absolutely um so how has how have you been able to leverage the coalition are you involved in other sort of police shooting incidents um and you know advocating for either the families or maybe the victims of those incidents. Tell me how that work has gone or if so, you've built, you know, mm -hmm. built into that. Well, I think as, um, as we've become more and more a voice for police accountability, um, we've been looked at to really take leadership on uh, issues between policing and community. And one of the, the first, um, uh, piece, uh, instances of solidarity that I think that we were able to use our now um, strong voice as a coalition was to speak up about the Annie Puntaguk, um death in the comments, the racist comments by a police officer or yes, sergeant. Yes, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And um, this felt good to be able to uh, speak up and sp uh, in solidarity with uh, another uh, marginalized community. And so um, we have, we've had made sure to do that whenever we can. And more recently in the, the death of Greg Rich, Ritchie, we also, um, again, we don't know the, the, the true circumstances about that incident. That's the police shooting at Elmdale Mall. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but the point, uh, the, the, the reason we did speak out about that as well is, well, you know, A, we, we feel solidarity with our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the day, one of the things we've been calling for all along is the excessive use of force and um, trigger happiness of mm -hmm. some police officers and the training. Um, you know, I, I will mention also, 
you know, we've we've tried to be as explicit as possible when it comes to our position about police officers and this question of racism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we know that they're good police officers and we know that there we also know that there's systemic racism within the police force. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that there is a deficiency in the level of training um, and support that are given to police officers. As first responders, they are challenged with very difficult situations. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't think that they're trained sufficiently to deal with them. And so training for m- mental health was one of our early recommendations mm-hmm. um, to the police chief. And we've been tracking the, the recommendations we've made. And unfortunately, there's been very little movement on providing officers with the necessary training. I find that the Ottawa police um, think that their job is just to recruit more, you know, police people of color, and they think that their job is done. Mm -hmm. You know, I was at the, um, so from, on on the public-facing side, uh, what also came out of the you know abdi's death is the um addressing uh racism Mm -hmm. anti-black racism yeah and um so there was work done around that and which ended up culminating in uh some recommendations yeah and a policy view yeah and um and i what i found was that um what the frig was i saying about the hiring of police officers right right right, right? yeah right so yeah. they think that they think that they're so right so what came out of that sort of study or mm. report yeah. was uh, a town hall yeah so i wrote a piece for the ottawa citizen on this town hall basically saying they have no measures of accountability there's none they have they basically think that they can just bring in black faces or brown faces and then that's it. Mm -hmm. Not really talking, and that's not addressing anything. No. And so, and there's no measurement either in terms of how that's going to be done. Yeah. And so I I don't know where they're going with this is Uh, basically it. Well, we we have advocated for more hiring of visible minorities. That's especially black police officers. We do believe representation does matter. And we do believe that there are qualified um, members of the the different communities that that could be police officers. But that's not in the absence of saying that there's so many other peripheral issues as well as embedded systemic issues that needed to be dealt with. Right. Um, And we pointed those things within whether it was the guns and gangs unit of the police and how that's um, structured and managed. Um, This police officer, Daniel Monson, was a member of the guns and gangs unit. Uh, ah. He has a history of being um, physical and violent with uh, racialized youth, particularly black youth. There was his judgment had been called into question by uh, by a judge in in Ontario courts um, about his handling of a Somali youth previously. Interesting. And what had so what had been done? Nothing or nothing. Just, Just slap it, on the wrist. He, and that's he was it? warned. That was Th- it. That was it. That was it. And so... And he ended up killing somebody. Eventually ended up... I mean, you you leave these things unchecked and that's what's going to happen. And that's what our biggest worry is about the outcome of this trial. Okay. I think that if... Uh, if you don't mind, if I just go get into that, you know, here go we ahead. are at the courthouse next door to where the trial is taking place. And, um, you know, in the first days of the, the trial, um, media had been very curious to know what we were hoping to see come out of this and what kind of outcome we're looking for. At the end of the day, Abdurrahman Abdi is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, he represents the death of so many other black men. Mm -hmm. in particular, and the unfortunate way their deaths are handled. Mm -hmm. I think that what we want is for um, true uh, a a process, and whether we like how slow this is going or not, it is the process, and we're happy to see it unfolding. We, We just want answers at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? We want accountability. Somebody's life was lost in the hands of paid public servants. Mm hmm Where's the accountability? That's what I'm asking myself consistently in terms of the way things work. Mm -hmm. Where's the accountability? 
and at every level. Yeah. And I don't know when that piece just went by the wayside. Yeah. If it was ever built into the structure in the first place. Yeah. And not only that, but how can we as marginalized communities, especially as black, the black community, how can we use the levers of power mm -hmm. to get our voices heard mm -hmm. and our issues confronted yeah. with resources? Yeah. So I think that that is, and I think you just answered my question, which is what does justice look like? Mm -hmm. And you basically just answered it if you want to, mm -hmm. if you want to, you know, answer that again, that'd be great. Well, where's the accountability? Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether what the sentencing looks like is not in our hands. I think that at this point, um, the effort is in our hands to have brought us to this point, right? Uh, as a community, I feel we are responsible for how, um, you know, I don't, I can't say what would have happened had, you know, these kinds of efforts not happened. But I do believe that the pressure um, and the sustained efforts of the coalition and so many others that were involved did give this a level of attention that it needed and deserved. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a community, um, for all those listeners right now, please show up to the courthouse. Show that you care and that, the, this, that whatever happens here is going to impact you. I think that that's the real reason we're asking people to show up to the courthouse is because it's very symbolic it means that we're paying attention right. and that we are a part of whatever this process is and how it's going to look, that we want to bear witness to it. Mm -hmm. It will be such a shame if we look back and we're not part of this process. Thank you. That's, you just answered the next question, oh. which was, how can we support you? That's, Show up. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. That is the biggest thing. Uh, the first day of the trial was in a courtroom on the f bottom floor. Mm -hmm. It was tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was actually the defense lawyer that requested a bigger space mm -hmm. so that supporters of the accused could be present. Mm -hmm. And I can't say it any louder that supporters of the victim should ha also be there and have the space. And I'm glad that it was the, you know, that the, the defense did make that call. Um, but we would have demanded it. We were heading up to the court administration <laughs> right after mm -hmm. that day. Um, but please, I think if you're out there and you want to know how you can help, your your physical presence is cannot be measured. Which courtroom is it? We're in courtroom 34, mm -hmm. 161 Elgin, third floor. Thank you. Um, I... I have no more questions for you because you just took it over nicely. And this was, you were a great, great. Well, thank uh, you for having us and I, giving us a space on the show too. I, this is a very important, this is very important to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure what kind of media you've done, but there's media that's going to look at it a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, I really want to you know, I'm always thinking about how do we get value? How do we how do we come at this from a perspective of um, community mm -hmm. and a perspective of um, of like basically of justice? What does justice look like? We say it a lot. Yeah, we we're and very few people have an idea of what that actually looks like. Okay, I think we're done. Thank <laughs> Somebody you. Somebody just came out. Okay. <laughs> All right. So thank you for being here. Um, I appreciate uh, that we're, we're in a really weird space right now so uh, that we have to go. <laughs> so um, live recording. Yay. Yeah. All right, everybody. We will talk to you next time. So that was a really, really um, enjoyable and um, inspirational interview for me. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Faria is just amazing in terms of what she's been able to accomplish, obviously with a team of people around her and with a supportive community around her. And it just goes to show what we can achieve together if we just ask people to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and I think that 
you know, for a lot of us, it's um, overwhelming in terms of what we want to do and we don't know where to start. So for me, I I think that I intended this um, interview to be inspirational and aspirational instead of rehashing the details of that fateful day for Abdirman Abdi. Let's basically come together and just talk about what it is we can do in a response to these tragedies when we feel that our communities and our lives and our livelihoods are being infringed upon, especially by the state. And so that was the direction. Um, I That was my intention for this bonus pod. And I hope that that's what you got out of it. So I'm going to sign off. Uh, we will return with misogynist, misogynist of the week tomorrow. And um, I know this is the last day of Black History Month, but I feel like this was worth waiting for. So if you want us to do more good work like this, please, please, please subscribe to us. Um, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Podcasts, um, Podbean, I believe we're on Stitcher too. Uh, So you can basically find us anywhere. And you can also hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash bad and be podcast on Twitter at bad and bitchy, Instagram at bad and bitchy pod, email us badandbpod at gmail.com and please contribute subscribe and contribute to our patreon uh every little bit counts everybody we would love for you to um even if it's just five dollars a month we're good ten dollars a month we would love it you can hit us up on patreon at patreon.com forward slash bad and bitchy until next time y'all peace out and stay bitchy my bitch is bad and bougie.